0: Welcome to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard every other Saturday morning throughout the province. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. And this is your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith about a few issues of the day, to ask your questions, voice your concerns. Once again, please keep those questions or concerns as short as possible. We only have so much time. Same thing with your texts, short and sweet. And we have... A ton of text in already. Our board is already full from phone calls from our listeners throughout Alberta. So please be patient. I will try to get to each and every one of you, or most of you anyways. Premier Smith, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Wing. It's been another busy couple of weeks. Does, does it ever end for you? Man, no. I tell you. It's
1: always busy. You know what? I've got really effective cabinet ministers. And they are all in a hurry to get their mandate items done. And so we got lots of stuff to do. So you um, bet. we're making great progress.
0: All right. Earlier this week, you made the televised address to Albertans, giving some advanced notice, I think is the best way to put it, of what Albertans can expect in the provincial budget that's due to come down end of the month. You get an extra day this uh, this year. Of course, without getting into details, the general theme of your address prompted all kinds of reaction and speculation and the usual, the devil's in the details commentary. The theme, from what I'm gathering, was one of fiscal restraint. As you stated, though, priority still being given to health, education and social services and growing the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. But instead, what a lot of Albertans heard was that the income tax cuts that you promised in your election campaign won't be happening, that they've been delayed and will be phased in. And some say that that shows you've welched on your promise and can't be trusted. Can't you move forward with those tax cuts and also have that degree of fiscal restraint?
1: Number one that I promised Albertans is we wouldn't run deficits. That's number one. And so everything we do has to be within that context. And so when my uh, finance minister came and said, you know, I'm a little bit worried about what I'm seeing next year. First of all, with this uh, softening of oil and gas prices. Secondly, with the fact that Trans Mountain, and Coastal GasLink are still not completed in producing and shipping abroad, as well as the uh, uh, the fact that we have to renew a bunch of our, um, our debt over the next three years. And so we had hoped that as we were paying down debt, we would be able to reduce our finance charges. In fact, because we're renewing at a higher rate, our finance charges are going up. We're also in the middle of a major restructuring of health care. So some of the benefits that we realize of the slower growth um, in uh, in spending are going to take some time as we figure out efficiencies. And I just didn't want to run a deficit. So uh, that's that's part of the reason people can be assured that we will uh, deliver the on the tax cut as promised. It'll be uh, at an 8% rate at $60,000. It's just going to, and we'll show the plan for the phase in on it. But I think that uh, people would be very upset with me if we delivered a tax cut and then had a deficit. I think that I would, I would face a lot more pushback on that. So my Overriding goal is to keep our first promise, promise which is to make sure that we're, we we stay in balanced budget.
0: Okay, let's get on to the other, uh, the big topic, the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. Ambitious plan to boost it to ten times what it is now, 25 billion to 250 billion by 2050. That of course is the net zero greenhouse gas emissions target so not an arbitrary timeline Uh, quite frankly uh, premier that old trust fund chestnut has got bandied about by every premier almost since its creation so how will your plan be any different or successful and why not just continue doing as we're doing now?
1: Well, in 2001, I think, was when I wrote my first column saying we needed to keep the investment income in the fund to be able to grow it to $150 billion so that we could eliminate personal income tax. That was 2001. And then when I was a uh, wild rose leader, I, somebody, one of my old comms directors pulled up my 2012 article where I said, we need to invest the income in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund and grow the fund to $200 billion. And so that's what I'm saying now is now is the time to do it. There have been lots of opportunities over the years, and i i don't want to i don't want to bemoan the fact of that we would already be there if we had just started back in 2000. I mean, I could bemoan Hind- it.
0: Hindsight's 2020, isn't it?
1: But here's what Albertans need to understand: is that all it takes. To, uh, to begin growing that fund in a substantial way is to not keep siphoning the investment income off that fund. We've siphoned $45 billion of investment income off that fund. It's about a billion dollars a year. You keep that billion dollars a year in... And then it just is allowed to continue to grow and accumulate, and it, it, and on its own, we'd be able to get to about 125 billion by 2050. If we added a billion dollars a year of our resource revenues, we'd be able to get to 250 billion. If we added two billion a year in resource revenues, we'd be able to get to 400 billion. So that's the conversation that we're having: is are we prepared to finally uh, stop wishing what might have been? And uh, and and as a as a uh, as a society decide that we want to have something that we grow for our uh, not only our benefit but the benefit of our kids and grandkids. So that if it does turn out to be the case in 2050 that our oil and gas resources are not as valuable or needed as they are today, then we have created a long-term legacy so that we are not going to end up on that revenue roller coaster. That's what I'm asking Albertans to to uh, to support me on.
0: And that's what you meant by this is our. One last shot to get it right
1: completely because it does take a long-term commitment you can't get there overnight and it requires sustained commitment to ensuring that you're not going to keep on rating that fund and that's what i'm asking Albert's to to come on board with and and support me in doing because I, I just think that once you have a, a sovereign wealth fund of a size that we see in norway or alaska or qatar or any of the uh the, the other energy rich countries now you have the ability i think to really give the stability that Albertans have been craving
0: and to get off that roller coaster of of oil dependency Completely. all right on the Alberta morning news Kevin Usselman had one of his straw polls and this one was do you think Premier Danielle Smith can do something her predecessors did not and uh, referring to ending the uh, wild economic ride on the resource revenue roller coaster uh, we didn't have a whole lot of votes 87 I mean that's not too bad uh, only 28 percent said yes Sixteen percent said no, but fifty-six percent—that's the overwhelming majority—said, "Hey, let's give her a chance before passing judgment."
1: Oh well, that's that's good to know. I mean, I this is just it. Proof is in the pudding. It's people can only judge you by your actions as opposed to your words. I just wanted people to know the direction. I think we can all go together, and I'm I'm pretty excited about it.
0: All right, let's uh, go to the phones right away. We're going to start with uh, oh gosh. So many to choose from. We'll start with Marianne. Uh, Marianne has been holding on for, uh, I think, since about 15 minutes before the show started. So we'll start with Marianne in Calgary. Go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Marianne.
2: Hi, Premier Smith. Um, On the subject of Stephen Gilboa, you were a lot more charitable than I when you called him a radical who has to go. Uh, My moniker for him is climate criminal crackpot since he came out with his No More Roads pronouncement. Um, in August, people might remember that he attended a climate meeting in Beijing, cost us $140,000. We didn't hear word one from him. He didn't scale any towers in Beijing or proclaim Communist China responsible for 30% of GHGs. Instead, uh, he bullies and punishes Canadians for our 1.5% of GHGs. Now, my question is, um, do you think, though, that Gilbo is trudeau's proxy and trudeau actually shares the same
1: ideologies you know marianne i was willing to give trudeau the benefit of the doubt until this week when he came into town, blew in with, you know, barely any notice, didn't tell us why he was here, went on the air, slammed me, slammed our oil sands, slammed any worker who's been fooled to think that the oil sands uh, companies are actually going to, to get to net zero, and then breezed out again. And, and uh, th- when I saw that, I realized that he is actually the, the proxy for what Trudeau uh, truly believes. I thought that we were engaging in good faith with the federal government yeah, on because- trying to get aligned to a pathway to, to carbon neutrality by 2050. Yeah. And
0: You've also got the Alberta group, the Al- Alberta-Ottawa group, that is trying to find some consensus. So does this kind of political posturing by the Prime Minister harm any kind of progress that that group might be achieving?
1: All I can say is that uh, that sounds like campaigning. That sounds like election talk. It sounds like he's once again following the same old pattern of trying to demonize Alberta so that he can win votes in eastern Canada. And if that's the case, if we're headed to election, then let's get it on. Let's have an election. Let's put the ideas on the table let's either get him another four-year mandate so we can get back to business and be grown-ups about how we uh, engage with each other or let's have a change of government so that we can have a government in place that that doesn't continue targeting alberta unfairly but if that's what he's doing is electioneering for the point of trying to earn points and and votes in other parts of the province and or other parts of the country then call an election already
0: all right, we're going to pause for a break. We've got lots to talk about, uh, lots of questions regarding health uh, for sure and other topics. We're going to get to those. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Daniel Smith and more of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier.
2: Your Province, Your Premier with Premier Daniel
0: Smith. Talk on FM, QR Calgary. If you're just joining us today, you are indeed listening to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard every other Saturday morning for listeners throughout Alberta. At Edmonton on 630 Chad here in Calgary on QR Calgary, it's your opportunity to be heard by Premier Danielle Smith. Now, we still do have that full slate of, uh, of phone calls from both uh, Chad and Calgary. Lots of text messages as well. And this is an important one I'm going to start off with. Uh, I'm not sure who sent this one in, but the question is, so to save all the money... Uh, and the references, I I presume, with the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, uh, you will sacrifice health and education.
1: Absolutely not. Um, If you heard what I said, what I said was that we've been siphoning about a billion dollars a year off of the Heritage Savings uh, investment to put into general revenue. So if instead of that billion dollars, if we just saved it in the fund... It would grow and compound over time. That's all we have to do is just a little bit of belt tightening so that we can save a billion dollars. Because the next year it'll be 1.2 billion, and then the following year it'll be 1.7 billion, and then the next year it'll be 2.3 billion, and pretty soon it'll be self-sustaining and growing. That's how compound interest works. It's why people put money into RRSPs, and why they tell you put money in early when you're when you're young because the interest will do most of the work to get you there by the time you're 65. That's all I'm asking Albertans to do is just have a little bit of restraint. So that that billion dollar can stay and be invested, and then when we have windfall surpluses that come from the uh, the acceleration in uh, the sale of our, our products or the the uh, the higher prices, then we'll put a portion of that into savings. We'll put a portion, of course, to debt repayment. We'll do a portion for one time one time spending. But here's the here's the thing that we need to understand is that. We are in the middle of a major restructuring of health care, and there's a reason for it. We have... No, let's,
0: if I could interrupt you right there, yeah. let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, please. Um, the question, two questions related to that on the text line. How can our health care system improve when there's essentially been a hiring freeze for months after your announcement that the number of frontline health care workers were being increased? It's not happening. And the other uh, texter said, how will a freeze on the hiring of health care professionals improve the access to health care for Albertans?
1: That's spin. That is spin from the unions, and it is not accurate. We have asked for a higher level of scrutiny when we hire managers and non-clinical staff. Because what have I said? I've said we have layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of managers, which is keeping us from being able to hire frontline workers. And so our new um, health services CEO has said, you know what? You want to hire someone who doesn't see the eyeballs of patients? I need to sign off on that. And that is exactly what Albertans expect us to do, and it's exactly what I told Albertans we would do. When it comes to uh, physician assistants or uh, clinical staff, we're, we're, we're having that uh, d- decided at a lower level. It's just an extra level of scrutiny to make sure that the positions being hired are ones that we need to actually fill. And in fact, when uh, the new approval process came through they sent out 250 job offers within 48 hours it may actually allow us to get faster hiring on the positions we really need and then not hire excessive managers who we don't need at all. So I'm just saying I'm not gonna accept the uh the the, the spin that is out there is simply not true. What we are doing is ensuring that more dollars get put on the front line because the clinical care and the patient care is absolutely essential.
0: Where are we on the issue of LPNs?
1: Well, look, I can tell you where we're at on trying to assess the problem that we have in Alberta Health Services. And there's it's a twofold problem that we have. What one is that we have a an org chart that that is 663 pages long. If you want to get an idea of why we have such a management problem, 663 pages is their, is their org chart. So we are slowly working our way through that to decide where those positions should be. Should we be hiring them at all? Should they be in the department? So that's one part of it. The other part that we're trying to assess is why do we have a constant crisis in acute care? Why is it that I'm, we're constantly told that beds are full, they're at 100% capacity, that are at 105% capacity, and part of the reason for that is that we have people who are in acute care beds who should either be in continuing care, mental health facilities, they should be in addictions treatment, they should be at home with home care, or they're awaiting some kind of support for for rental housing. We just got an assessment of how many alternative level of care patients there were in our acute care beds. It's 1,550 of 6,400 beds. If you're wondering why we have problems in our Alberta uh, health system is that the most expensive door and the most expensive bed is being occupied by somebody who should be in an alternative level of care. So that is what we are trying to solve. And that is a management issue. This is the reason why I have told managers, you must prove your value. And a manager who sat there and allowed for somebody to sit in a bed for literally 800 days because all they needed was to get their tax return done so that they could figure out how much and how much uh, um, uh, support they were entitled to. If a manager wasn't able to see that and move it, that's a manager who shouldn't be there anymore. We have stories like this all over the place of people who have been languishing in acute care beds for 100 days, 200 days. That is actually 891 days. So don't tell me I need to hire more managers. I need to hire fewer managers. I need managers who to do their darn job. And if they don't do their darn job, we're not going to hire more of them. We're going to hire more frontline workers.
0: All right, let's uh, switch gears. We're going to go to uh, John calling in from Diamond Valley with a Rick McIver question. Uh, Go ahead, John. You're on with uh, Premier Smith. Yes.
3: Good morning, Premier. Uh, Our two communities were amalgamated here about a year or two ago. And lately there's been a lot of stuff happening in the communities that shouldn't be happening. Like, uh I can't go into details because there's been non-disclosure agreements signed. But I was wondering if Rick McIver could do like what he did at Chestermere and have a look at the books and see what's going on.
1: Well, thanks for that. Um I'm, I'm sure I'll, we'll pass that on to Rick McIver and see. Look, we don't want to interfere in municipal, um, uh, elected, locally elected decisions, uh, capriciously or arbitrarily, there has to be a very serious reason to do that. And he made a determination that that was the case in in Chestermere, and that's why he made the decision that he did. But I don't want anyone thinking that we want to intervene in these kinds of cases. The, 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 there's a there's an opportunity for anyone to try to address their concern they have with council we we put in recall legislation that allows for a recall petition i think there's three different petitions going on right now we also have the ability for someone to sign a petition of you know 10 of their fellow uh, members and they can put forward policies that have to be debated by council so there are lots of ways that citizens can address some of the local issues and that's the way we prefer it all right on that issue
0: Growing calls to allow the establishment of city or municipal political parties. These are parties not necessarily tied to provincial or federal parties, but they would be political parties nonetheless. That would require, as I understand it, some kind of provincial government approval. What's the process? How likely is that to happen?
1: Well... I'm in favor, especially for the largest municipalities maybe not everyone I mean we've got three hundred and fifty five municipalities, and what the smaller the municipality I don't know that that they're as partisan, but when you get into a city the size of Calgary or Edmonton, you better believe it's partisan. I know everybody thinks that it's not. But did anyone really know that there were going to be single-use uh, plastics and paper bans that happened in Calgary and Edmonton in the last election? Don't you think people should have campaigned on that? Uh, it's been re- I think they're revisiting it in Calgary, but there's, they still have it in Edmonton, and it just came out of the blue. So I, I think because we are now at a point where Calgary and Edmonton decision-makers are moving beyond... The things that cities normally do, cities normally do things like infrastructure. They make sure that your lights stay on if you're with if or, or EPCOR. They make sure that you can get your garbage picked up. They make sure that you get water. Um, they make sure that the parks and the streets are cleared. So I would say that because they are now getting far more political and far more ideological there probably needs to be a little more transparency about that. So maybe not every municipality, but I'm so what's, not,
0: what's the process then? How do we get to that point?
1: Well, I guess we'll have to see what um, the, my minister of municipal affairs comes up okay. with. I mean, I've told him on that but what I think about it, but I'm not the only decision maker here. We have to put it around the cabinet table, the caucus, get consultation and feedback, and there'll be there'll be very likely there'll be legislation that uh, that addresses addresses this in this spring session.
0: All right. Uh, on that note, a text message. Why do you want to meddle in municipal government? So there, I think we uh, we had, we talked about that one. Well, now,
1: why, does, why do municipal governments want to meddle in what are provincial matters? That's what I'm asking. Well, it's, it's the same problem that we're facing. The federal government keeps on wanting to do things that are my job. And I'm, we're seeing that municipal governments also keep wanting to do things that are our job. Our job is to create an investment climate that people that is sustainable, that is going to, to allow for us to communicate to the world that this is the, the best place to do business. Uh, we want to be able to have consistent policies when it comes to our approach to the environment we want to have consistent policies when it comes to our approach to building and if we start seeing that municipalities are moving into an area that is really the domain of the provincial government then we're going to interfere
0: okay linda is phoning in from edmonton with a question on the coots four Uh, linda go ahead you're on with premier danielle smith
2: oh good morning premier um i do support you in many ways but my question this morning or a comment and then a question is about uh, the coots Four, the four men that uh, were held in remand for two years, and I know now that two of the men are out. Um, So the way I see it is that uh, anybody can be picked up off the street and be charged uh, with inflated charges and then two years later held in remand and um, without bail, uh, then pled down to lesser charges, charges that they weren't even initially charged with. Uh, we really don't have a justice system. What we have is a legal system. And as of yesterday, there was some more evidence that has come out that allegedly uh, RCMP have lied about uh, what exactly went on with um, the amount of guns and what have you. So my question is, uh, we need accountability uh, from the RCMP, the police, politicians, Crown prosecutors, and who is going to be held accountable for this. Thank you.
1: We'll, we'll let the, the process play out on that. I, I think uh, everyone knows uh, w- where it stands. People know what the Jordan uh, law is, that um, any uh, all of these issues have to be resolved within 30 months. I think it's getting pretty close to that, so I'll just let the process play out.
0: Okay. Uh, Chris has been holding on for uh, half the show, uh, calling in from Edmonton. Oil and gas question. Go ahead, Chris. You're on with Premier Smith.
3: Oh, good morning. Uh, my question has to do with uh, the provincial uh, books, um, uh, the structural deficit and uh, where we would be without non-renewable resource revenues. Now. From what I can tell, the government's projecting resource revenues to be sixteen point two billion over the next three years, and that's a projected surplus of five point five billion uh, per year. But if you go back and look at our resource revenue um, as an average over the past two decades, that would be nine point three billion, and we, you know, we'd go from a surplus of five point five billion to a deficit of four point eight billion over the next three years. And I, I think, uh, Madam Premier, people just do not understand the, um, the, the nature of our structural deficit and how we are at risk every year, depending on external circumstances, uh, which affect uh, the price of oil. And, and so, yeah, sure, everyone wants you to spend all of this money uh, on fixing health care fixing opioid and addiction you know the unions will always ask for more money I 100% support what you're doing in terms of leaving the interest from the Heritage Trust Fund alone let it build um, getting rid of middle management in Alberta health care by attrition or however else you have to do it I'd really be interested in seeing that organizational chart that is, I don't know how many pages long.
0: I think you people need have to have no an idea. entire wall to put it on, from <laughs> my understanding. What, a a regular whiteboard would wouldn't be enough. Well,
1: I think what we, if we're in this room, I think it would be every single wall from fl- floor to ceiling on an eight and a half by 11 page for us to be able to see the entire org chart. Interesting. Well,
3: I, you know, it would be really nice for, this, for the citizens of this province to see uh, all of these people on that on that 663 page organizational chart and how many of them are on the sunshine list and that's why we can't control our spending you know we've got uh, the structural deficit means without non-renewable resource revenue we're in a deficit right chris and people have to understand that please get that across to Albertans.
1: chris you did a brilliant job getting that across to Albertans. It's, it keeps me awake every night looking at how much resource revenue is now needed to be able to balance our budget. And we've been so fortunate over the last few years that there's a couple of things that have happened. One is that our big oil sands projects, I think 65 out of 114, are now at payout. What that meant is we had a structure where they would pay a lower royalty until they recovered their capital costs. And it was, I think, 1% to 5%. And now that their capital costs are recovered recovered. It goes up to thirty to thirty five percent. So that has made a huge difference. And so we we, we should have a relatively higher level of income as a result of that. When Trans Mountain is up and running, that'll be an extra 600,000 barrels per day. And then when uh, Coastal GasLink is finished and we're able to see more LNG projects, that will also increase the value and price of our, of our gas. And so there's just it's just a little bit of patience because some of those things are coming into alignment. They're just not there yet. But I would tell you, and I want people to, um, to understand the, the problem that we've discovered. The problem that we've discovered is that our revenues, our long-term revenues don't grow as fast as the the budget asks of the departments so departments might want five or six or seven percent per year but if our revenues are only growing three percent per year yeah, we can't we can't keep growing our expenses yeah. faster than our revenues so that's part of the reason why we've got to find different ways of doing things uh better ways of doing things more cost effective way of doing things it doesn't mean that you do less service it just means you do service differently and that's the transformation that we're in the process of doing right now all right brian is
0: uh calling in from Cochrane with an ems question go ahead brian
3: Yes, thank you, uh, Premier. Uh, I'm the chair of the Cochrane EMS Crisis Citizen Action Group. We've been around since uh, 2021. I'm a retired ACP. And we have developed four pillars of how we think we can improve the EMS service. And I just want to talk about one pillar. Cochrane-based EMS ambulance must not be tasked with non-emergency transfers of any type under any circumstances. The information that we have, we're doing about 13 non-emergency transfers out of Cochrane. Yesterday, Diamond Valley was on a transfer to a city hospital and a Delta call came in. And my question, why is it taking so long to get these private contractors online that can do the private, that can do the non-emergency transfers and leave our EMS cars in the community that that they're based in?
1: right Thank on you no you're totally right and and thanks for the work that you're doing because it, it's made a, a huge difference when RJ Sigurdsson was my parliamentary secretary he elevated all of those concerns which is why we created that non-ambulance transfer process and it was working pretty well in the first few months and then there was an election and things started to regress and so we' made a change in the senior level of management we brought in uh, the person actually who engineered the uh, the, the changes to EMS at anmethananopolis and so part of what we've discovered is is EMS has to be governed separately. It has to be governed from the department because if it's governed by AHS, then the a- then they're being dispatched for the um, and used in a, in a way that that uh, I think is inappropriate. So number one, you'll have. Ambulances that are parked and acting like an extension of hallway medicine. We can't have that. And then you'll also have ambulances that should be doing the acute care calls that the caller was just talking about, essentially transferring patients for for medical appointments. We have an ability to have a different type of vehicle for that. I had thought that we were doing pretty well on that, but if we still have this this problem in, in Cochrane, we're clearly not doing enough. Just know EMS governance is now back in the department. So there is somebody who's an ADM responsible for EMS. So we, I should be able to elevate that. We, we'll see if we can uh, address it quickly. But the diagnosis is absolutely right. We, we need to do a different type of transfer rather than using our acute care ambulances. All
0: right. Uh, dozens of texts on both the CHED and uh, QR Calgary lines about cost of electricity. Everybody is saying, tell the premier to lower the cost of electricity. That's the short version. Your response?
1: Yes, we will. We are, and one of the things that uh, we we're, that will happen this year. The, the sad part was the delay. the The early phase out of coal left us short when we ended up needing the the power the most without having the new power coming on just yet there's 2700 megawatts of natural gas coming on this year that will make a massive difference we're taking the pause off the wind and solar uh, assessments on February the 29th so that will uh, give a little bit more clarity about how a responsible amount of wind and solar can be brought onto the grid
0: how much clarity will there be is no, no, are yeah. you are you satisfied with the process the protocols that will be enacted
1: there'll be there'll be a lot of clarity i mean i think i think albertans have a lot of clarity after what happened on january 13th they they know that at five o'clock at night when it's minus 35 and the wind isn't blowing the sun's not shining we need to have natural gas to be able to make sure that the lights don't go out and so that is the point that i have raised is that every time we bring on wind and solar we have to have some kind of natural gas backup, and that's part of the reason we've been able to bring on so much wind and solar. So people will see that there will be a staged approach to make sure that we're never in that situation again.
0: There's been some uh, comment that about 100 projects worth more than $33 billion were put on hold throughout the moratorium process. Are we going to get those back?
1: Well, we'll get back as much as we can bring on as with gas at the same time. Like, again... There's no point in me bringing on 33,000 megawatts of wind and solar if none of it's going to work when it's minus 35 on January 13th when it's 5 o'clock at night. You, you can you can build 100,000 megawatts of solar, and if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you still get zero power. So that's what I'm saying. We need to bring on a responsible amount of wind and solar and always ensure that we have enough baseload dispatchable power so that it can be backed up. So it might be a slower pace of growth, but I think that um, because we're we are the premier destination for solar and wind, in the entire country. Uh, people want to invest here. We've got great wind resource. We've got great solar resource. But we we have to be able to have dispatchable power. That is, that is the number one thing. And I think we can do that in combination because wind and solar could potentially have battery as backup. You could potentially have a hydroelectric battery where you pump water. You could potentially have a peaker plant as backup. You could maybe make hydrogen as backup. But that's what we're going to be challenging the industry to do is to understand that if they're coming on stream, we have to be able to have a backup for them when they don't work.
0: Is it going to be an added level of red tape?
1: We believe in the market. We do. Okay. And But here's the other thing that I said. is Part of the reason I had to invoke the Sovereignty Act in the, in the fall is I'll tell you what we're experiencing. So I met with somebody who has what I would think would be a perfect project. 1,200 megawatts of gas with a carbon abatement to best available technology right now, which is pretty good, using the CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. So it's an economic project went to three different banks and the bank said, no, because of the federal uncertainty that you might shut this in, it might be stranded. We're not prepared to fund that. But if it was a solar or wind project, we would. So that's the problem that we're facing is, is if I have to step in and de-risk those kinds of projects so they get built so that we we do have reliable power we're going to have to do that i don't want to do it i'd rather solve this dispute that we have with the federal government so that they understand natural gas is an important transition fuel carbon capture is going to get better and better uh natural gas is needed to be the backup for wind and solar so we can bring more on i haven't been able to break through on that yet but we're, we have to make sure Number one that the lights stay on and that electricity is affordable.
0: All right. One more question from the phones before we take a break. And this one is uh, Ken from Calgary on a rent control question. Go ahead, Ken. You're on to the Premier.
3: Good morning, and thank you for taking my call.
1: Go ahead, Ken.
3: Okay. Um, I'm a senior, and what I'd like to know is why you haven't brought in rent controls. The old narrative from the 70s, no longer works for anybody. Any builder, developer, contractor knows that they can sell or rent anything they build. And you have no idea how many seniors you're hurting.
1: There's there's two different ways to be able to help seniors and those who have low income. And the, the way we want to help seniors is by ensuring that we have a robust rental subsidy program. So I think we're adding 15,000 more people to our, our rental subsidy support program. Because uh, that, to me, is is the way that, that you ensure more rental housing gets built. Look what, hap- what happens when, and they've seen this time and time again in different markets... When you have rent control put on, the person who's currently in the house may be protected, but the next guy who needs an affordable rental suite doesn't get one uh, because they're, they're just not going to be built. We have to make sure that we create a market where uh, there's always going to be people saying, and developers saying, yeah, I want to build more rental suites. Last year, I believe we had 5,300 uh, housing starts on rental on rental property, multifamily rental property. And we want to keep that going. That is the way that you solve the long-term problem. You just have to make sure that you don't put anything in place that is going to chase away that kind of construction. Otherwise, you end up with problems like you have in other jurisdictions where where they, they are seeing a massive acceleration in, in Vancouver and in Toronto. I don't know that there will ever be attainable housing in, in Toronto or Vancouver. We're, we're not in that situation. We never want to be. But the way we do that is we make sure that we continue to have housing starts and rental starts.
0: All right. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith. We're going to be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson, back with you on Your Province, Your Premier. Your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. If you do have a specific question you'd like the Premier to answer, phone in although the phone lines are full right now you can text i'll try to get to them i think we have hundreds on both uh so let's go to the phones uh right away ed is uh calling in on a renewable resources question go ahead ed
3: yeah hello can you hear me yes sure go can. Ahead. yeah uh, danielle i'm just wondering when you're going to start taking this climate crisis seriously i mean it's the children that are going to really pay the price here in the future for what you're doing. You're going to go down in the history books as being part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now I mean if you just invested ten percent of the hundred and eighty thousand abandoned and oil wells, if you took ten percent of that and covered them with solar panels, you'd have enough power to drive the whole province and if you invest in power storage technology we'd be laughing now when are you going to start helping the children they're going to have to suffer the consequences of your actions thank
1: you well let me correct ed because i've talked to the folks who are in the world of battery storage and that night we would have basically even if we'd had batteries installed everywhere it would have lasted an hour so it still doesn't help for me to tell people to wait at, until 9 o'clock in the morning until the sun comes up for them to be able to finish cooking their dinner and hope their pipes doesn't freeze. Uh, so we have to live in the real world. And in the real world, the technology is just not there yet, which is why we need to have reliable dispatchable power and backup for when wind and solar don't work. And we are in the process of uh, cleaning up those uh, those well sites. There's... Um, Uh, a requirement that companies have to spend their own money 700 million a year in uh, cleaning up those sites and it may well be that some of those sites are are good uh sites for 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 solar or or for wind turbines i don't i don't know the answer to that but that's uh, not a bad idea for for consideration if it's already disrupted why not look at those as potential options but the the fact of the matter is my government is committed to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. We have big projects like Pathways, Dow Chemical Petrochemical, Net Zero Petrochemical plant, Air Products, Net Zero Hydrogen. Heidelberg is making a final decision on uh, Net Zero cement. I've talked to Doug Ford. They've got Net Zero steel happening in Ontario. I sure would like to have that here as well. We're investing in hydrogen. We uh, invested in uh, trying to do dual fuel vehicles for biodiesel and hydrogen for long-haul trucking. We're also um, invested in helping the cities to look uh, purchase hydrogen buses as well. We have purchased three hydrogen vehicles for our fleet. We hope to do a whole lot more. We're moving in that direction. It just uh, some things take time, and we're we're going to get there.
0: All right. Text lines. Can we as a province start using coal again? We have a huge supply of coal to use and turn it into electricity. Another texter said, "Was there a reason and reward for going off coal early?" And a third one, related question. This one from Will says, "Why can't nuclear be sped up?"
1: Well. Uh, I've been pleased. Boy, those are all good questions. (laughs) I would say at this point in time, uh, there really isn't an appetite in in North America to move towards, uh, to, to move back to, to coal for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, natural gas was already the preferred fuel because it's such a, a low cost. And so there was a natural conversion that uh, made sense economically to move to natural gas. And so I would say, especially with natural gas, I believe it's trading below $2 a, 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 an MCF. So I, I think that natural gas still does make the, the good economic choice. I don't know if that'll change in the future, but here in Alberta, it, it makes Sense for us, the um, uh, but the, on the issue of of nuclear, I was pleased to see that Capital Power has to deal with on, Ontario Power to look at how we might get small modular nuclear deployed in our province. I thought that might be another thing that we would have to de-risk. So I'm really excited to see that companies are are going forward, coming up with proposals. I hope Albertans are ready to have that conversation because I I think it's a different type of technology. It seems like like people are are a lot more open-minded about about that technology as opposed to some of the technologies of the past. And and we're supportive of going in that direction. We signed a deal with Saskatchewan, Ontario, and New Brunswick so that we could uh, look at how we would cooperate on an MOU on that. And so I'm open-minded and optimistic that that can be part of the solution, yes.
0: All right, back to health. This one, a doctor's question uh, on the QR text line. How will your government improve wait times and access to care when family doctors are retiring or moving to provinces like B.C. that offer better terms and working conditions? We
1: we are very close to signing a new uh, business model for our doctors. I mean, I've been just as frustrated as the doctors are. The way I put it is it's like we're asking them to run a $400,000 a year business by billing out at $36 increments at a time. and it's it's an incredible administrative burden. It's not great for patients. I mean, I've heard patients being told, no, you can only come for one visit, one item. You have to come back if you've got a second visit you need to do. That's not good, uh, good for the patients either. So if we can create a new business model and payment system where we pay a doctor for rostering a patient so that helps them take care of their administrative costs, maybe defray some of their overhead so that they're starting the year not worrying about how they're going to pay the bills, the rent and the utilities, and then pay them on a per-patient basis depending on how um, the acuity of their patients so that they can manage their chronic conditions as opposed to the pay-for-service, then I think we'll be moving in the right direction. All of that's complicated because, as you've seen, there's multiple pieces to it. But we want the same kind of arrangement for our nurse practitioners so that we can have nurse practitioners open up practices as well. So I'm told by my, um, my health minister... That we're we're very close to, to uh, working out the details on that. I, I'm hoping that we're talking matter of uh, weeks, not months. And uh, we're about to have the budget come down next year, and then we, uh, we'll be able to to move forward. I believe with this new bo- business model in the new year and uh, uh, in the new budget year. And I I know everybody is looking forward to it. So I would just ask, everyone, be a little bit patient. We inherited a lot of problems, and we're, we're working through trying to fix them one at a time.
0: Back to the cost of electricity. Text message in on the QR line. Is there a perverse incentive for the transmission and distribution companies to spend as much money as they can justify under the AUC's rules? Does Premier Smith think the costs for transmission and distribution could be decreased if the regulator was able to conduct more thorough audits on capital costs?
1: Hmm. That person he seems to know a lot about the electricity business. Totally right as well. That, that One of the things that we've observed is that in the past, it, it, the the model allowed for uh, for a coal company to build a big facility, and then the transmission lines were, were pretty straightforward to get them to market. <coughs> Sorry, I got a little biz- bit of a uh, tickle in my throat. <clears> throat. But with the smaller installations, you have to build more transmission lines. So that's why it's causing an increase in the cost. All right.
0: Okay, we are going to uh, go to a phone line. Uh, Ethan is calling in from Edmonton on uh, entrepreneurs. We'll let uh, Premier Smith uh, recover just a little bit here. Uh, Ethan, uh, go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith uh, for, uh, for as long hi. as she can speak.
4: Uh, hi. Um, yeah, uh, this is exciting. Uh, uh, actually, my name is E-Fung. Uh, I'm actually an immigrant, uh, 30-year-old entrepreneur here. Yeah, um Alberta just really just started. Um, you know, a uh, good morning, Premier. Go ahead. <laughs> yep,
0: we can hear you. Yep.
4: So uh right. So my question is, um, so how can I, you know, sort of better connect um with uh with the Premier yourself actually. Um so in the past I was able to um meet uh, MLAs um in in various, you know, free events that it's very easy to uh, to, to connect uh, with um but uh, you know i just personally think you know i, I actually i want to do something really good for the albertus um but you know how, like what's that what's a better way you know i can basically uh, have my proposal you know heard uh, you know, more <laughs> at, you, basically.
1: Well, uh, you know, I would love to meet all 4.7 million Albertans one-on-one. I, I wish I could. I make myself available on this show so that we can have exchanges. I, I do uh, town halls in my riding. Um, um, I try to do them in each of my major centres just before... We go back into session, um, and uh, I don't know if you're a constituent of mine, but I do also have constituency hours in my office to meet with constituents, as do every MLA. But I would say that to understand my role, my role isn't to approve individual grants for individual projects. That's that's not the role of the premier. The role of the premier is to identify if there are policies to, that need to be changed that would benefit an entire sector. And if we need to pass those policies, then it's my job to make sure that we get them through through uh, the, the, the various um, cabinet and, and committee level processes. So I wish you well in your entrepreneurial endeavor, but I don't think I'm the right person for you to meet with. If um, it is a, a grant that you're looking for, we, we do have things like emissions reduction, Alberta, if it's in the energy space. We do have... Um, the Alberta Enterprise Corporation, which uh, supports things like startup T&T, if that's the tech space that you're in. So I would just encourage you to call your MLA and find out the different programs that are available.
0: All right. One- all right, one final question. Uh, we got about 20 seconds left. Uh, the Premier was talking about rental subsidies. Where do you find this program? Uh,
1: th- that is through my Seniors Community and Social Services minister and ministry. And so go online and, and have a look for that because we, we knew that we needed to, to do an expansion of it. There are limitations depending on what your income level are, but we, we want to, to be able to share. Uh, we, it has to be tailored to the family size as well. It's a little bit uh, lower for a single and a little bit higher for a family because you need to have a large larger space. But Seniors Community and Social Services is the ministry to go to.
0: Premier Smith, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Wayne. See you again.
0: We'll do this again in a couple of weeks at this same time. I'm Wayne Nelson. You've been listening to Your Province, Your Premier.